good afternoon. My name is Brian Parks. Welcome to Covenant Hope Church and welcome to November. Today is the first day of November. I don't know if any of you noticed that. Which means yesterday was a unique day. It, of course, was... Okay, yeah, there's a lot of Christians out here. Yes, it was Halloween, of course, yeah, I think which is maybe now should be renamed International Costume Day. Um, but uh, it's also Reformation Day yesterday, October 31st, 502 years ago, Martin Luther, who was a Roman Catholic monk who had begun studying the Bible for himself, amazingly, most people were not allowed to have a Bible or study the Bible. Even, even monks were not allowed to, generally speaking, at that time. And Martin Luther discovered as he studied the scriptures that what the church was teaching, and at that point in time it was the Roman Catholic Church, what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching was not what the Bible taught, particularly about salvation, how to be saved. And so he objected. He objected to that. And he objected to many things. In fact, on that day, October 31st, 1517, he nailed his what have become, have become known as the 95 Thesis to the door of the church at Wittenberg. The name of it was actually Disputation of Martin Luther on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. Yes, much longer than the 95 Thesis. And in those theses, he was arguing against, mainly at that point in time, the practice of indulgences in the Roman Catholic Church, which was basically a way that you could pay money to the church and buy spiritual favors for yourself or other people, both those who were living or especially those who had died. And many people at that time believed were in purgatory and were working their way out of purgatory to try to get to heaven. We don't believe in purgatory. We don't believe the Bible teaches that there is a purgatory. But Luther would go on, of course, to be deemed a heretic by the Roman Catholic Church. Years later, he would suffer much in his life because of his stand for the gospel and a right understanding of what Scripture taught. And many others would suffer as well. Actually, some suffered before him, and many, many suffered after him because of what they believed the scriptures taught and what the true gospel was and how the church should be organized and run. Many of them were thrown into prison. Many of them were forced to flee into exile to other countries. Many of them were executed cruelly, drawn and quartered, burned at the stake. Terrible, terrible things. 38 years later, in fact, on one particular occasion, in 1555, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, who were both from Oxford and were, had been bishops at least in their past, they were both reformers in the church at that point in time. They were arguing against the Roman Catholic Church there in England. They were deemed heretics and they were sentenced to be burned to death at the stake. And so... Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were lashed to poles and a lot of wood was brought and built around the base of those poles. They were in the middle of it. It was then lit by torches. And of course, you may know that famously 
as those flames were growing ever higher, getting closer and closer to them, Hugh Latimer turned to Nicholas Ridley and said, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. So their death, their suffering, they believed was accomplishing a purpose. It would light a candle, it would light a flame, so to speak, figuratively speaking, that if they stood up for the truth, if they suffered for the gospel and what the Bible truly taught, that more people would find their way to Jesus Christ, that they would be brought out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of his son, that they would know how to live in righteousness for him according to the scriptures, not according to dead man's tradition according to God's word. People who preach the true gospel and claimed Christ have always paid a price, and yet the gospel has gone forth anyway. Oftentimes, in fact, it goes forth because people pay the ultimate price. And that's at the heart of the message that Paul is preaching to Timothy in his second letter to Timothy. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to 2 Timothy. It's in the New Testament. It is thought to be Paul's last letter written before he himself would pay the ultimate price. He was executed in Rome. And he's writing this letter to Timothy, the second letter to Timothy, from a prison cell, a hole in the ground, basically. And he's urging Timothy to come to him. And more than that, he's urging Timothy to be a faithful minister of the gospel because he knows he's at the end of his life. And what the world needs is faithful gospel ministers. Look with me at chapter 2. We're going to be reading in verses 8 through 13. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 8 through 13. Follow along with me. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray and ask the Lord to show us what we need to learn from his word today. Heavenly Father, if nothing else, Lord, please cause Jesus to be firmly fixed in our minds today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the big idea from these verses is this. Remember Jesus as you suffer now to gain glory later. Remember Jesus as you suffer now to gain glory later. And as we move down through these verses from 8 to verse 13, we're going to be looking at three people or groups of people that Paul focuses on and how they suffered earlier in order to gain glory later. First, he's going to mention Jesus. Next, he's going to mention himself. And last, he's going to speak about all Christians everywhere. And he uses them as examples to hold up for Timothy to see. Jesus, Paul, and us suffering now in order to gain glory later. 
Our passage from last week in verses 1 through 7 continued Paul's instruction from chapter 1, of course, and where in those verses Paul was instructing Timothy to suffer for the life-giving, death-defying gospel by the power of God. He's stressing to Timothy that elders have been given a great treasure in the message of the gospel, and their primary role is to pass it on to faithful people who will teach it to others as well. Specifically, Paul was charging Timothy with the task of raising up more gospel preachers and pastors. But in a broader sense, of course, we can also, if you're not an elder, you can listen to Paul's urgings to Timothy and take it on for yourself because the calling also falls to you as well to pass on the gospel, to pass on that good deposit, that treasure that Jesus initially passed on to his apostles and has made its way all the way to us. The gospel is a treasure meant to be preserved by immersing ourselves in the apostles' teaching, by making choices in our lives according to it, and then by passing it on to faithful people who will believe in it and teach it to others as well. That's how it works. That's how the Christian faith goes on. Now, sacrificing now for a future reward, of course, was the theme in verses 1 through 8. And Paul pointed to three examples. He talked about the single-minded soldier. He referred to the rule-obeying athlete. And he pointed to the hard-working farmer. A soldier, an athlete, a farmer. And in these verses, 8 through 13, that same theme of suffering now for a reward later on continues. And so Paul first begins by pointing Timothy to Jesus then to himself, and lastly, to every believer. A Christian's life should follow the same pattern, the same pattern as Jesus and the same pattern as Paul himself, and we suppose the same pattern as Timothy as well. Paul reminds Timothy of Jesus first, the one who died, but now is the glorified king of all the heavens and the earth. And so the first point is, remember Jesus in his suffering first in order to gain glory later. Remember Jesus in his suffering first in order to gain glory later. That's in verse 8. We see that in verse 8. Paul's urging Timothy to simply remember Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 8 with me. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. And we'll pause right there. As crazy as it sounds, Paul felt he needed to remind Timothy, don't forget Jesus. Don't forget Jesus. It's quite surprising, isn't it, of course? Why would, why would Timothy be tempted to forget Jesus? But Israel's history proves that God's people have always been forgetful, always forgetful of the most important things, and the most important one, in fact, God, mostly God. Now, I'm going to come back to this point in just a little while. But first, let's consider what it is about Jesus that Paul wants to emphasize to Timothy. And so we're going to start with those next two phrases that come right after remember Jesus Christ. Paul says, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and the offspring of David. Now, you should know there are 
There is so much packed into these two phrases. So much, I think, that Paul means for Timothy to be thinking about beyond even just those simple words. There's eight words there in those two phrases, but there's so much more that they stand for. First of all, together those phrases remind us about Jesus and his person, his personhood. They teach in brief form that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Saying that Jesus is risen from the dead demonstrates that Jesus is God. He's reminding Timothy, Jesus is the God-man. Death couldn't hold on to him. He defeated death on the cross. You see, only God, who is the author of life, can defeat death. And his resurrection proves his divinity. But he's also fully man. He's the offspring of David. That is, the offspring of King David, of course. He can trace his human lineage all the way back to that king who lived about a thousand years before Jesus. And so Jesus is the God-man. He's fully God and he's fully man. So at least those phrases tell us that. But these two phrases also teach us about Jesus' work, what Jesus did and what he accomplished. The fact that he's risen from the dead reminds us that Jesus first suffered and died. Of course, we know that Jesus was accused of blasphemy by the Jewish leaders and condemned to be executed by crucifixion. He was brutally whipped and then nailed to a cross and hung there until he would either bleed to death or most likely suffocate. But what seemed like senseless suffering actually accomplished forgiveness for all who would believe in him. Jesus was suffering for a purpose. He was accomplishing something. He was taking on himself the punishment for our sin so that we wouldn't have to take it ourselves. And Jesus' resurrection demonstrates that God accepted his sacrifice for us. The resurrection validates his sacrifice. Philippians 2, verses 8 and 9 point to that. There in Philippians, Paul says to the Philippian church, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So God's resurrection of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit is like God's grand stamp of approval on Christ's payment for our sins. It's as if God is saying, paid in full when he raised Jesus from the dead. Paul is also reminding Timothy that Jesus' suffering eventually led to glory. He was glorified. That's partially what Paul means when he says he is the offspring of David. It means he is the king. He's currently the king. God had promised King David a thousand years before Jesus that a son of his would sit on the throne of Israel forever and rule and reign over his people forever. And of course, Solomon came along, but he failed. And every king after Solomon failed, failed, and failed. And even when they were partially successful, they were never completely successful to lead the people in the ways of God's righteousness. But Jesus was the perfect son. Jesus was not only the son of David, but Jesus was the son of God. 
And so he rules and reigns in all righteousness. He's perfect. And he is the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to King David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Go and check it out after the service. Because of Jesus' obedience to humble himself and take on the form of a man and give himself up to be crucified, God exalted him. That's part of what Philippians 2 was saying. Therefore, God exalted him. Hebrews 10 as well says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And that's still happening. Jesus has been exalted, he's been glorified, he's been lifted up, and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father right now. He's alive. Now, all that I've been telling you about Jesus' person, his humanity, his divinity, and about what he accomplished and how he accomplished it, all of this is shorthand for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's shorthand for the good news. It is good news. In fact, it's the main content of the gospel message. You see, these two phrases sum up our hope. And that's why Paul says that this Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. That's really all he had to say to to trigger Timothy's thoughts, to know this is the gospel. He's reminding me of Jesus and the gospel. If you're not a Christian and you're exploring Christianity, Maybe you're trying to figure it out. You've come here to ask questions, to investigate. And that is a fantastic thing to do. This is the best place to come to do that. Or then maybe even afterwards to ask and sit down with one of us who are the leaders in the church or maybe someone who brought you to church today. Ask more questions about what you're hearing me say this afternoon. If you're that person, you should hear from Christians a message that's centered on a person. When you hear about Christianity, you should hear about the person of Jesus primarily, not primarily a religious strategy, not primarily a formula. We hold out Jesus to the world, and we say, what are you going to do with Jesus? How will you respond to who he is and what he's done? How will you turn away from your sin? Will you accept his free gift of forgiveness And will you set out to live your life in allegiance to him and him alone because he is the king? That's what we ask. That's what we seek to do. That's what what we want to talk about when we talk about the good news of Jesus Christ. We want to talk about him. We want you to deal with him. And I believe that that's the most crucial question that you'll answer in your life. What are you going to do with Jesus? But Paul isn't just reminding Timothy of the content of the gospel about Jesus. I think he's primarily pointing to Jesus' life as the model of the faithful gospel minister who suffers now in order to gain a reward later. Just like the soldier, just like the athlete, just like the farmer in the verses just before ours, Jesus' life, more than anything, showed that death is the gateway to life and suffering is the path to glory. Paul wants Timothy to remember Jesus' example so that he would be encouraged in his own present suffering for Jesus' message. Brothers and sisters, do you need to remember Jesus' example to encourage you as you perhaps embrace suffering for the gospel message right now in your life? 
Do you need to fix your eyes on him anew? Do you need to take a fresh look at Jesus as you fight sin right now? Do you need to reconsider the life of our king to strengthen your resolve to live for him no matter what it costs you? You know, it it seems almost silly to remind Christians to remember Jesus. (laughs) But we're not any different than those forgetful Israelites. You know, I, I, I find in my life so often that, I mean, I'm a pastor. I, I get up in the morning and I think about how am I going to lead the church? How am I going to teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ again and help them know all that the Bible wants them to know about? And yet, I need to remember Jesus more often, especially when I maybe am facing or involved in disagreements with other people. I need to remember Jesus. How would Jesus handle it? It's so easy not to remember and go my own way. Or maybe if I'm driving on Sheikh Zayed Road, I need to remember Jesus so I can drive like Jesus would drive. And when I'm on the Internet, I need to remember Jesus. Where would Jesus go on the Internet? What would Jesus look at on the Internet? What would Jesus listen to on the Internet? In the Old Testament, God wanted the Israelites to remember what he had done for them. And, of course, the things like the Passover meal was to help them remember how he had rescued them from Egypt. They were to celebrate the Passover every year to remind themselves about Jesus. They celebrated actually very, very few times. And then 40 years later, after the first Passover, when they crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land, God instructed them to set up a stone monument to remind them of how God had led them into the Promised Land. But they forgot. And God would send wave after wave after wave of prophets to speak to them and call the people back to himself because they had forgotten him. Just as an example, God spoke to them through the prophet Jeremiah saying, but my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods. Over and over the prophets were saying, you've forgotten God. Israel was prone to forget God and what he had done for them. And so are we. That's one of the main reasons that faithfully gathering every week as a church to sing and pray and preach the Bible is so important. We're, we're like leaky buckets. <laughs> you pour a lot of Jesus in on the weekend, and it's all leaked out sometimes by Saturday or Sunday or Monday. We need help remembering Jesus, the different things we should remember about him. And so a pattern of disregarding the regular gatherings of the church won't help you in your forgetfulness of Christ. Listen, brothers and sisters, don't, don't let much keep you from the weekly gathering of the church. If you can, plan your travel so you can come on Fridays. I know it's on Friday afternoon. It's not exactly convenient if you're going to travel on the weekend. And that doesn't mean traveling is bad, but I'm just saying if you can, come. Be reminded. Feeling down, feel like it's emotionally hard to interact with others, and you kind of want to stay home, come anyway. Come be with us. You don't have to talk to many people. You need to remember Jesus in those times perhaps more than any others. 
Paul points to Jesus as the supreme example of suffering now in order to gain a reward later. That's in verse 8. But in verses 9 and 10, then Paul begins to point to himself as an example. And so that's point 2 this afternoon. Remember Paul's suffering in order to gain glory later. Remember Paul's suffering in order to gain glory later. Look back to our passage beginning at the end of 8 because we're mid-sentence. 8 and 9. Paul says, as preached in my gospel, and then with nine, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Again, Paul refers to his suffering for the gospel. Of course, that's a repeated theme throughout this letter already. We're not going to hear the end of it today either. He's bound with chains as a criminal, he says. Remember, Paul was in a Roman prison. He's awaiting his likely execution. I mean, they had put chains on Paul, the preacher of the gospel. I mean, as if Paul would try to escape. It's kind of funny, actually. You know, as if he was a threat or a danger. I guess they never heard the story about the time when Paul and Silas were in prison and an earthquake burst the doors of the jail open, but Paul and Silas stayed in the jail anyway and preached the gospel to the jailer, and he became a Christian and all of his family. Uh, Paul does stuff like that, of course. But they bound him. But Paul knew that even though he was bound, the word of God was not bound. It couldn't be bound. Just like the grave couldn't hold Jesus, nothing can restrain God's word when it's proclaimed. It will accomplish what God wants it to accomplish. Paul refers to the gospel in the book of Colossians, the first chapter, and he says the gospel is growing. It's like he's talking about the gospel is alive. It's got a life of his own, of course, because it's God's word, and God is the author of life. And so it goes on and on and on and accomplishes what he wants. While Paul was chained in prison, of course, those he had led to Christ, like Timothy, were on the outside spreading the good news even more. That's why he could say the gospel wasn't bound. The word of God couldn't be contained. There's a famous painting in a convent library in Erfurt, Germany, that shows Martin Luther hunched over a Bible at his desk, and the morning light is streaming in from the window beside him, and it's shining on the Bible, and hanging from the Bible is a broken chain. Do you get the message? The Bible's message of good news in Jesus Christ cannot be chained. It can't be imprisoned. It's let loose. I've seen this in my own ministry over and over again. When I worked with students on campus, oftentimes I would bring passages of the Bible printed out on A4 sheets of paper so that I could hold a Bible study, Bible discussion in the university food court without drawing too much attention. And so I would pass out these sheets of paper and a discussion would begin at one of the food court tables. And oftentimes the students who participated would, at the end of the discussion, ask to take the Bible passages away with them. They'd ask, can I, can I keep this? And of course, I'd say, yes, you can take it with you. I was happy to give it to them. And on a number of different occasions, a few days later, I would learn that someone from the discussion had gotten on a university bus with lots of other students that I never would get a chance to meet, and they would pass that Bible passage all around the bus, and everyone would read it, and they would comment on it. Most of them, of course, had never read the Bible or seen the Bible. Amazing. You never know what God is going to do when his word is proclaimed. 
you never know how it's going to continue to reverberate and echo and be passed on. During Joseph Stalin's rule in the 1930s in the Soviet Union, Bibles were outlawed. It's an atheistic state. Bibles were collected or either destroyed, and many of them that were collected were stored away, locked up by communist officials. Then, after the fall of the Soviet Union, one mission agency sent people into various cities to begin to share the gospel in what is called the former Soviet Union. And when they were doing gospel ministry there, they needed to have Bibles, but Bibles were in short supply, and so the missionaries discovered in one particular city that there was a warehouse on the edge of the city where Bibles had been locked up all the way back in the 1930s. And so they got permission from the authorities to go to that warehouse. They took with them some university students to go and unbox and retrieve those Bibles for use in their ministry. And one particular group of these missionaries tells the story of a young man, a young university student, tagging along with them. He was an atheist. They were sharing the gospel with him, but he had not given his life to Christ. He tagged along to help them unbox and bring those Bibles out, and they lost track of him in the warehouse. Eventually, they found him in a back corner of the warehouse with a Bible on his lap, weeping. You see, he had gone back there, and he had opened up this Bible intending to steal it for himself, and he had been shaken to his core to discover that the Bible had been signed by his grandmother. It was her personal Bible. She was a believer. You think she prayed for her family? All grandmothers pray for their family. <laughs> she had prayed for this young man. Pray that he become a Christian. God's word can't be bound, can't be kept in. Isaiah 55 Verse 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is one of the main reasons that I regularly encourage you to invite your non-Christian friends to read the Bible with you. I think it's one of the best ways for you to share your faith. I mean, do you feel at least slightly inadequate to argue for the truth of the Christian faith with your friends? I do. At least if you feel slightly inadequate, then let Jesus do the talking for himself. Read the Bible with your friend. Invite someone to open up a gospel and let them make up their own mind about Jesus. You'd be surprised what will happen. Paul knew that the very thing that brought suffering to him was accomplishing something of infinite value. And so he willingly suffered so that God's word could be set free in the world to accomplish what? The salvation of the people that God had chosen. Of course, we see that in Paul's reasoning in verse 10. He says, I'm bound, God's word's not bound, and therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now that little, that little, <laughs> that little, that little word elect <laughs> refers to all the people that God has already saved and all the people who will be saved in the future. It's a fixed group. And it's not filled up yet. The doctrine of election, or what is often called predestination, is clearly taught in Scripture. This is just one of the multitude of Bible verses that teach it. The doctrine of election teaches that mankind's sinful nature has corrupted us so much that we cannot seek salvation. 
Our will is not free, but it's in bondage to sin. So in and of themselves, people will not be seekers. They will not seek God. doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. So even what we might call good deeds are done for selfish reasons that do not glorify God. So if people are to be saved, God must save them completely without any contribution on their part. No contribution on their part. It's not like God is throwing a, a, you know, a life ring into a drowning person and saying, hey, grab the life ring and pull yourself in. No, it's like you and I are on the bottom of the sea, dead, drowned. And Jesus jumps in and swims down and gets us and brings us back up and resuscitates us. Dead to life. All on Jesus. Now, this is different from God simply knowing who will turn to him in faith. That's God's foreknowledge. This is God deciding and making it happen in us. So Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Or Acts chapter 13, 48, and when the Gentiles heard this sermon, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And those are just two. There's so, so many. But you may be surprised to read that Paul endures everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation. So Paul's working hard. He's suffering. He's sacrificing for God's chosen people to be saved. The ones that God has already determined will be saved. Okay, so you might be thinking to yourself, if God has chosen them and they're pre- he's predestined them for salvation, why would Paul have to work and suffer for them to be saved? It's going to happen, right? Well, the answer is is that God doesn't work to save people apart from his providential control of everything else in the world, including those of us who love him and preach the gospel. He's working through us. You see, when he saves people, it's not just God doing that. God's, God's orchestrating everything for that to happen. Election and the hard work and suffering of gospel ministry are not opposed to one another. And so we work at it as God commands and instructs us to because there are elect out there that are going to come to Christ when we preach the gospel. We don't know who they are. That's not our business to figure that out in advance. We can figure it out by preaching the gospel. The elect obtain salvation in Christ not apart from the preaching of Christ, but by the means of the preaching of Christ. Now, if you still feel conflicted about this, I want to encourage you just keep reading the Bible. Keep reading the Bible. And once you see it in one place, then you're going to start seeing it in another place and another place and another place and another place and another place. You're going to see it everywhere in the Bible because it is everywhere in the Bible. J.I. Packer, in his famous little book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, begins his book saying that he doesn't even need to spend time proving to us, his readers, the general truth that God is sovereign in the world. He's in control. He says, if you're a Christian, you already believe that. And he continues by saying that he knows you believe that God is completely sovereign or in control in salvation for two reasons. Because one, you thank God for your conversion. And why do you do that? Because you know in your heart that God was entirely responsible for it. You did nothing to save yourself. You know that. And two, you pray for the conversion of other people. Let me let Dr. Packer speak for himself as he continues. He says, you pray for the conversion of others. In what terms now do you intercede for them? Do you limit yourself to asking that God will bring them to a point where they can 
save themselves independently of him? I do not think you do. I think that what you do is to pray in categorical terms that God will quite simply and decisively save them, that he will open their eyes, the eyes of their understanding and soften their hard hearts and renew their natures and move their wills to receive the Savior. You ask God to work in them everything necessary for their salvation. You would not dream of making it a point in your prayer that you're not asking God actually to bring them to faith because you recognize that it's something he can't do. Nothing of the sort. When you pray for unconverted people, you do so on the assumption that it is in God's power to bring them to faith. You entreat him to do that very thing, and your confidence in asking rests on the certainty that he's able to do what you ask. And so indeed he is. This conviction which animates your intercessions is God's own truth written on your heart by the Holy Spirit. In prayer then, you know that it is God who saves men. You know what makes men turn to God is God's own gracious work of drawing them to himself. And the content of your prayers is determined by this knowledge. Thus, by your practice of intercession, no less than by giving thanks for your own conversion, you acknowledge and confess the sovereignty of God's grace. And so do all Christians everywhere. If God's not sovereign in salvation, you need to stop praying for people to be saved. But he is sovereign in salvation, so you need to keep praying for God to save people. Because he can. Paul believed that, and so he endured everything so that God's elect would come to know Christ and eventually share in his eternal glory. That's that last phrase at the end of verse 10. The salvation that's in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The purpose of salvation doesn't stop with the forgiveness of our sins. The purpose of salvation is eventually that we would be glorified. We would be like him in a glorified state. Oh, believe me, you want to be glorified. <laughs> I know you do because we all seek it in illegitimate ways right now in this life. <laughs> but God intends it for us. He does in Christ, in Christ, and at the end of time when he comes back. How did Paul compare his suffering with the reward of glory for the elect? <laughs> I mean, he basically said it's not worth comparing. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. <laughs> That's what Paul calls living in a hole in the ground. <laughs> Light and momentary affliction. Brothers and sisters, what are you willing to endure to make the gospel go out? What are you willing to give up? Maybe it's simply some of your free time. It could be that if you stand up for Christ and the gospel, you'll endure ridicule from colleagues at work or maybe family members Maybe you won't get that raise, that promotion. Or, or maybe you'll experience the mocking of your classmates. Sometimes the biggest sacrifice we have to begin with is not to be so self-focused, so self-centered. The beginning of denying ourselves is thinking about Christ and other people before we think about ourselves. 
We have to begin thinking about other people and how to reach them with the gospel. Maybe you're already making these sacrifices and you're enduring suffering for the gospel ministry and you're getting weary at it. Oh, brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Be encouraged by Jesus. Be encouraged by Paul. Endure for the sake of the elect. Now, Paul had pointed to Jesus as a model and then he talked about himself as a model. And finally, in verses 11 through 13, he urges Timothy to remember the promise that suffering for the gospel now will eventually give way to gaining glory later for every single Christian. All of us. And so that's point three this afternoon. We must remember that we suffer now in order to gain glory later. Remember that we suffer now in order to gain glory later. And Paul does this by quoting what most scholars think are the words to a Christian hymn or perhaps um, a saying that would be recited at a person's baptism. He's saying it's a trustworthy saying. Now he said that, he used that phrase a lot in 1 Timothy, his first letter to Timothy, and he's saying it again here. And this saying, this, uh, this, this portion from a hymn contains four lines that echo one another like in poetry. And the first two are promises, the first two lines. The first says in the second part of verse 11, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And the first, si the first line sounds a lot like what's in Romans cha chapter 6, actually. Maybe verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Or just a few verses later in verse 8, Paul says in Romans, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. The dying in this line is not a one-time event. It's not just dying to sin one particular time. It's a reference to the ongoing day in and day out dying to self that's a part of what it means to follow Christ. Jesus, of course, told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, i.e. suffers, endures, sacrifices, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Then the second line makes a similar promise. In verse 12, he says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Have you ever thought about heaven and wondered, what are we going to do in heaven for eternity? I mean, I know we're going to sing. <laughs> but what are we going to do there? Is there anything else to do? Listen, we are going to reign with Jesus. We are going to rule over the new heavens and the new earth together under his supreme rulership. We're going to have stuff to do. Paul wanted to remind Timothy that the rock-solid promises of God about eternal life and eternal rulership should equip us with a hope that fills us with the resolve to keep taking up our cross and dying daily as well as enduring suffering for the gospel. But the third line in this hymn takes a different turn. Rather than an encouragement, it's a warning. Look at that second half of verse 12. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Jesus had also promised that denying him would have severe consequences. It's going to show up at the end if you deny Jesus now. 
Matthew 10, verse 33, Jesus said, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. But the last line of the hymn is really, really, really difficult, to be honest. The question is, does the fourth line of this portion of a hymn echo and add to the warning of the line above it so that it would make it two promises and two warnings? Or does it surprise us and end with an encouragement? Is it two promises, a warning, and then an encouraging promise at the very end? How should we read it? It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Bible scholars are quite divided over how to read this verse. Now, we know that following Jesus requires faith. We know that we've all had lapses in faith that led to sin at different times in our lives, times when we didn't stand up for Christ or made a choice that, you know, included avoiding suffering for the gospel when we should have, in fact, stepped into suffering. We've all experienced that at different times. Is this... The faithlessness, this is the question, is this the faithlessness that Peter showed on the night when Jesus was betrayed, when he denied Jesus three times in a row? That was a temporary lapse into faithlessness. Jesus had already promised that Peter and the rest of the disciples who also abandoned him would be kept safe and that they would continue in his grace. And, of course, we know that Peter would go on to repent and, and be a bold preacher of the gospel and spread the gospel and could have written a letter to Timothy like Paul wrote to Timothy saying the very same things, pointing to himself even. And Peter ended up enduring much like Paul did. Or is this the faithlessness of Judas? The faithlessness of Peter or the faithlessness of Judas? Judas betrayed the Lord as well, but he continued in his faithlessness. In fact, what looked like faith really never was faith in Judas. The scriptures are clear. Judas was condemned, and he will not gain eternal life. Now, about this particular line in the hymn, I've gone back and forth as I studied this passage. Even yesterday, I was <laughs> scratching my head about this and wondering, given that the letter has an overall purpose of encouraging Timothy, I'm a bit more convinced today that the last line is an encouragement. I think it's meant to be a surprise after the sober warning of the line right before it. I think that's particularly maybe because I think that's what Timothy needed, that fearful, timid Timothy. That perhaps there were times when Timothy had already ducked. He had dodged suffering. He hadn't stepped into his calling, as Paul kind of hints at. And that he needed to know through Paul's letter that Jesus is faithful even when we're faithless. And he can't deny himself. In other words, he, he can't, he will, he will hold us fast, just like the song says that we sing. I mean, it says in the song, when I fear my faith would fail, Christ will hold me fast. Either way, either way, whether it's an encouragement or whether it's a warning, just like line three in the hymn, we know that God, all throughout his word, uses both hopeful promises and sober warnings. He uses both of them. And we need to listen to both of them. We need to take them seriously. We should let the warnings wake us up and keep us from falling asleep spiritually. 
And we should let the promises draw us to Christ, our faithful Savior and King. It's almost like the warnings put a thumb in our back and push us towards Jesus, and the promises draw us towards Jesus. We need both of them. Which do you need to hear right now? Do you tend to only respond to the warnings of God's word? If that's you, I want to encourage you to meditate on the hopeful promises. Go to God's word and think about heaven often. Meditate on what God tells us in his word about what a lot, what waits for us when Jesus comes back. Remember your Savior's promises and let it fuel your faithfulness in times when endurance and suffering are demanded. Memorize God's promises from God's word. Write them on your mirror at home to read in the mornings when you're getting ready. Brittany and Todd stayed with us for about a month recently, and they recently then moved into their own apartment. And thankfully, Brittany left some scripture on the mirror in the guest bathroom. And so I'm benefiting from that now. It's taped, Brittany, to my computer monitor. Appreciate that. Thank you. Post them on the dashboard of your car or, or, or read and recite them to yourself on the way to work on the metro. Listen, if you, if you tend to avoid then the warnings of Scripture, it's kind of the opposite problem, pay more attention to them. Don't just gloss over them. Don't skim past them. Don't, don't, don't run past them and, and, and say to yourself that they're, they're really just for other people. No, linger on them. Let them have their full effect. Read the prophets. You'll get some warnings in the prophets. Ask the Lord to fill you with both godly attraction to his hopeful promises and earnest prayers to be kept from suffering what the warnings threaten. You need both. And remind one another. Remind one another of these things, brothers and sisters. That's what Paul's goal was in these verses, to build Timothy up and to prepare him for a lifetime of faithful gospel ministry, suffering now for Christ and his gospel in order to gain glory later, both of all for God's elect and for himself just as well. That's what the words which Bishop Latimer spoke to Bishop Ridley were meant to do as the fire began to grow and build at their feet. Latimer was urging Ridley to suffer bravely now for the gospel with the great hope that Christ would continue to be proclaimed faithfully in England and beyond and that many souls would be saved by the true gospel and that both men would share in the glorious inheritance that awaited them when Christ, their Savior and King, would welcome them into his glorious kingdom. And he would say to them, well done, good and faithful servants. Come into my glory. If we endure, we'll get to meet them. Bishop Latimer, Bishop Ridley, and so many, many more. We'll be there together, those of us who are faithful to the end. And we'll have stories to tell for all eternity about how we saw the gospel bear fruit in our days. Praise God. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is not bound. And we thank you that not only have you made it possible and have affected our salvation 
through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but you've shown us a template, a model for what it means to be faithful ministers of the gospel, faithful gospel people, to suffer now, to gain glory later. In Christ's name, amen.